0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for our This Day in History today, and as always, This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Born on this day in history, the great Larry Bird in 1956. And you can't think or talk about Larry Bird without talking about Magic Johnson. Here are their stories.
1: It is Indiana State against Michigan State. The Bird against Magic. All of the superlatives have been used, and believe me, It all began in Salt Lake City, Utah, on the night of March 26th, 1979. It was the NCAA Championship, Indiana State versus Michigan State. A game that still ranks as the highest rated college final ever on television. A game that's now remembered as a prologue to a rivalry that transformed a sport and intertwined two legacies. Here's Larry Bird and Irvin Magic Johnson just before the big game. It would be the first time these two would go head-to-head on a basketball court.
2: Well, this is probably the biggest game I'll ever play in my life, and I just feel like, you know, I'm representing not only myself, my team, but we're representing our school and our, and our
3: town, Terre Haute. was well, uh, a dream come true, really, for me. Uh, I won the state title back in my home state, and then my next accomplishment was going to the NCAA and playing in, uh, a game like tonight in the finals.
1: They were two stars made to compete, but only one of them had been groomed for the spotlight. Born August 14, 1959, Irvin Johnson grew up in Lansing, a gritty industrial capital city of Michigan. He was one of Christine and Irvin Johnson Sr.'s ten kids. Christine was a school custodian, while Irvin Sr. worked two jobs nearly around the clock. Here's Magic Johnson.
3: My father, he got up early every morning, 6 o'clock or so, and uh, he went to uh, work on his trash-hauling truck every single day. Around noon, he would come home, catch a nap, and then he worked for Journal Motors for 30 years. And he won an award for never being late and never uh, missed a day.
1: As a youngster, Irvin displayed his own strong work ethic on the blacktop. Here's Magic and his sister, Evelyn,
3: I was out there all day long. Before we went to school, bus leave at 7, 7.30, I was out there at 6, 6.30, working on my game. From a very young age, Irvin knew what he wanted to do. He had it all
1: planned out.
3: My dreams were to play in the NBA and become a businessman.
1: Irvin was preparing to go to his neighborhood high school, a basketball powerhouse. They're predominantly black, Sexed in high. But when Lansing began busing to desegregated school system, Irvin's journey took an unexpected detour to the predominantly white Everett high school across town.
3: My first day at Everett High School was my first time I really had to understand there was a, a race problem. Nobody white would speak to anybody black, and nobody black would speak to anybody white. A lot of racial tension. A lot of fights, rioting. He kind of shrugged it off, and basically his attitude was, okay, well, I'll
1: I'll overcome this. Here's Irvin's high school basketball coach, George Fox.
4: Whenever there was any racial problems, the principal would get Irvin and go talk to these kids. I can just see him with his big hands, calm down, just calm down, he'd break up fights.
1: Talk with his friends, tell them, you know, let it go, you know, we can't fight about everything. Let's just chill. Let's play basketball. Irvin's talent was so great that soon after his varsity debut, a local reporter, dazzled by his exploits, gave the budding star a nickname.
3: In the beginning, I thought it was foolish and dumb. You know, I didn't know nothing about a nickname. Then what happened was, you start saying, wait a minute, it fits my game. Hanging out with my boys on the street corners, we used to sing Temptation songs. They started saying, hey, man, Magic, that's cool. And then people on the street started saying, hey, Magic. And I said, hmm. (laughs) He bought into it, and um, I think he felt he had to kind
1: of live up to that name. And I must say that he did. He loved it. The
4: more attention he got, you know, he just... He wanted attention from anybody he could get it from.
5: Yeah, it
3: does. Um, I really love the game, and uh, I just want to win. Gets
4: it over and back, and he jams it through, Irvin Johnson.
6: Irvin loved the dress. Nice and pants and
3: overcoats with the, the fur around the collar. Always had to have his afro blown out. He had to look the part, play the part.
6: Irvin was the first
4: guy. I have a posse. He not only had a posse of a lot of black kids, he had a lot of white kids and hanging around him. Some of my white
3: friends were like, hey, man, uh, we're having a keger tonight. Won't you come on by? And I'm said, what's a keger? So he said, well, what it is, we get this big keg of beer, and you just go for it. Okay, well, what time does the, the keger start? Because regular party time in our neighborhood is 10, 11 o'clock. Uh, The kegger starts at 7. I said, the party starts at 7 o'clock? I said, okay, man, I'm going to come to the kegger. We had a good time. The music was kind of bad, but we had a good time, you know.
1: In his senior year, Magic did at Everett what he had planned to do at Sexton, win the state championship. And when it came to choosing a college, he decided to stay home in Lansing.
3: Next year, I will be uh, attending
5: Michigan
1: State University. At MSU, Magic's star quickly went national, but at the top of the college game, he soon discovered a certain presence beside him.
3: The first time I saw Larry Bird was actually in a magazine. saw his stats, blown away by his stats, but let's see if he can really do it against us. And that's always a mindset of black players, if he's a great white player. In
1: 1978, after his freshman year, the 18-year-old Magic would quickly find out when he and Bird were both chosen to play for Team USA in the World Invitational Tournament. Spectators had never seen their pass-first, shoot-later approach. It was refreshing, and they quickly became crowd favorites. It,
3: w- it was blowing my mind because he's dominating Jack Givens, player of the year in college basketball. Larry Bird is eating him alive. I couldn't wait to call home to tell my boys, man, this dude named Larry Bird is for real. This is the baddest white dude I've ever seen in my life.
0: And when we come back, more on the story of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Their stories, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we're back with our celebration of Larry Bird's life and the life of Magic Johnson, the two were intertwined. It's a great story about sports, history, race, as always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. And now back to the story.
2: Well, I thought he was very good. There's no question about it. I, actually, I thought he was probably the best guard on the team.
3: Irvin Johnson, look at that. Oh!
2: Oh, we didn't get to play a lot, but you could tell.
3: I think our first game was in Kentucky. We got about a 10, 12 point lead, and they put us in. Went to 25, 30, just that fast.
2: Fast break again, three on two. Griffin,
5: one! That's steal by Larry Bird.
3: Take us out, the lead go back down, put us back in.
5: That's Bird and Johnson.
3: The show started again.
2: When you play with Magic, there's just something about it. You want to make that extra pass. You want to get that rebound and start to break.
3: We came down a couple times. I go behind my back, no look to him. He no look back to me. And I'm laying it up. I'm saying, oh, man. Here's
2: that last play. Magic Johnson going in, drops off the Bird. Bird puts it back off inside
3: to Johnson. Super battle. Oh, this guy got game.
1: They had some wonderful moments on the court. But the two had no meaningful conversations. Such brevity was hardly strange coming from Larry Bird, who was not only one of college basketball's greatest players, but also its biggest enigma. Larry Bird grew up in southern Indiana, in the tough working class town of French Lick, population 2,000. Tiny and remote, it was one of the poorest places in the state. Arriving Pearl Harbor Day on December 7th, 1956, Larry was the fourth of six kids born to Georgia and Joe Bird. Early on, he and his four older brothers earned a reputation around town. Here's older brother Mark and Larry.
6: We were always considered troublemakers. We're either fighting amongst ourselves or there was always one of us fighting somebody. Larry was always one that kind of instigated things, you know.
2: If I get my brother in a fight with somebody his age, I was happy as hell. Because I like to see him get beat up, and that's just the way it was. If if I got in a, a scrape with some kid, and my brothers didn't come to my side, they knew that when he got home, my dad was going to whip him.
6: Larry and my dad were best of friends. they done everything together. When. My dad would go out to my grandma's house. Larry would always go with him. They'd go fishing, do a lot of
1: things together. Larry's father battled his whole life against the demons caused by PTSD, which stemmed from a tour of duty in Korea. A talented craftsman, Joe Bird struggled to hold steady jobs.
2: My mom sometimes worked late, and sometimes she had two jobs, but that's the way it was. I worked at school during my lunch hours. Work at the local grocery store, put up hay in the summer. I mean, if you wanted money, you had to get it on your own.
1: To young Larry, actions spoke louder than words. He was very quiet, kinda of hung to himself a little bit.
6: I saw Larry take an F in an English class because he had to get up in front of his peers and give a speech. He said, I won't do it. But he just could not get up in front of his friends and talk. He was that shy. Of course next thing you know when he knew it was time for all of us together at the gymnasium there he'd be
1: the minute he'd get a basketball in his hand things were totally different he was good enough for indiana university's most revered and feared coach bobby knight to come calling late in his senior year and since the birds didn't own a car larry's uncle tossed birds loan bag in the back seat of his ford and drove 49 miles north to bloomington to play ball for one of the best college teams in the land.
2: Once I got to IU, it didn't take long to realize that well, I was out of my cocoon. had over 30-some thousand students that I didn't have the funds. first week and a half, I thought, man, this ain't gonna work.
1: After 24 days on campus, Bird packed up his duffel bag and hitchhiked back to French Lick. He did not tell anyone of his plans, not even Coach Knight. Letdown reverberated throughout the entire community.
2: Let my mother down. She didn't talk to me for two months. But it didn't matter what other people said. To this day, I don't care.
1: Back in French Lick, Bird went to work for the city. Meanwhile, that winter, his father's demons had taken him to an even darker place. Here's Jackie McMullen, author of the book on Bird and Magic when the game was ours.
7: By this point, Joe and Georgia were divorced and he was behind in his payments to the family. The police came by and of course they all knew him. So Joe said, hey, I need a few hours to get my affairs together before you take me away. So he called Georgia and he said, you guys will be better off without me and I'm gonna take my life. And he put the phone down and and he killed himself. He shot himself.
1: Here again is Mark Bird and Larry's high school coach, Jim Jones. When Dad passed, you know, it hurt
6: Larry. I mean, that was his best friend. It's gone now. And, but Larry didn't show it a lot. He just didn't say much, you know. He just kind of held it within. I never, I never heard him speak out about it
1: at all. Here's Larry.
6: I was
2: mad when I heard about it and I was madder after the funeral because I thought he sort of cut out on us during a, a tough time. But, you know, he went, he went through a lot in his life. He did what he had to do.
1: Here again is Jackie McMullen.
7: If Bill Hodges hadn't been as persistent as he had been, Larry Bird might never have existed in any of our minds. I believe that with all my heart.
1: I really do. It was Bill Hodges... The persistent young assistant coach from Indiana State University who convinced Bird to give college hoops another shot. So, with the promise to his mom to graduate, Bird headed to ISU, a school that never so much had been to the NCAA tournament. This fact did not phase Larry Bird.
2: Once I started playing, it's the same old thing. You know, he's at a small school and he ain't playing against anybody, <clears throat> which is fine, still dominated.
1: By the time he had led Tiny ISU as a senior to a 33-0 record and a spot in the 79 title game, Larry Bird had become, alongside Magic Johnson, the talk of college basketball. The day before playing in the most widely anticipated college title game ever, Magic couldn't wait to greet his old playmate. Here's Magic.
3: Indiana State was on practicing, and we were waiting in the tunnel. We got there early. I wanted to definitely say hello to Larry, you know. When they came through, it was like nobody would say nothing. I wanted to go toward him, like his guys, like made sure that he didn't say nothing. And then they kind of start snickering like, Missing State, you in trouble, we're gonna kill you guys tomorrow.
2: I probably did snub him. I don't remember it, but I'm I'm sure I did. I didn't want any you know, like I call it, love fest, hugging and, and, and slapping high fives with opponent. You're there for a reason. You're there to win a game.
3: That just said it's on now.
1: Heading into the tournament, Magic was the bigger star. But by tip-off, it was Bird, having hardly missed a shot in the semifinal, who had become the focus for the fans and, more importantly, Michigan State.
3: We actually had two men on Larry everywhere
1: he went.
5: Look at the pressure
2: I didn't play well at all. Biggest game of my life, I didn't play well.
3: It's all over, Michigan State University, national champions,
5: 1979.
3: Toughest loss I ever took. I I knew it was going to haunt him forever, because we were going to see each other a lot.
5: The
6: National Basketball Association
4: in its 33rd season is troubled by diminishing crowds and declining television ratings, signs that fan interest may be waning.
1: College basketball was flourishing at the end of the 1970s, but after the golden era of Bill Russell and Jerry West in the 1960s, the pro game was crumbling. But on a balmy afternoon in June, while Larry Bird was playing golf in Santa Claus, Indiana with his longtime friend, Max Gibson, a stranger hollered to them. Larry Bird, you've just been drafted by the Boston Celtics. What does that mean? Bird asked. Hell, I don't know, he said. Indiana State's season had just ended in heartbreak in Salt Lake City at the hands of Michigan State, and the Celtics made a pitch to sign Bird for the final eight games of their season. The young forward opted instead to teach flag football, baseball, badminton, and dodgeball at the local Indiana high school. His duties also included teaching mentally disabled children, a CPR course, and a driver's education course. It was an unbelievable experience, Bird said.
0: And when we come back, More on this great story. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, paired forever. Two legends, two men from such different walks of life. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. is our American Stories, and we last heard that Larry Bird passed on the Boston Celtics offer to bypass his senior year and instead spend the summer playing and serving in his town. Let's find out what else Larry Bird did that summer going into his senior year at Indiana State University.
1: One evening that summer, Bird was playing baseball and positioned in left field when a hard rolling ball smashed his finger and bent it backwards. I looked down, Bird said, and my finger was all the way over on the other side of my hand. Bird had to have surgery. How long is it going to take before it's healed? Bird asked the surgeon. Son, I'm not sure it will. He was right. Today, Bird concedes, I never could shoot as well again. Bird finished his senior year at Indiana State. And then in the spring of 1979, the NBA's sixth selected draft pick arrived with great hopes for the city of Boston. Here's Walter Cronkite. There's hope he can
6: help solve professional basketball's difficulties, which some say are compounded by a question of black and white.
8: The great white hope, what does that mean?
2: Well, you know, it's very hard to say because there's a lot of great white players around, and I just hope that I can just fit in as well as some of them that has fit in. You know, the, the great players are the black players, and they're the best.
1: Such regard meant little to black Celtics. Guys like Cedric Maxwell, who looked at Bird and saw not the great white hope, but another case of great white hype.
3: I think that you would say that most black players at the time were racist, in, in the sense that, we did not think that you could find a, a white guy who could play better than any black guy. When I walk in the first day of
2: camp, them guys were on the floor stretching, and here comes the white savior, here comes this, here comes that. I sort of enjoyed it, because I knew I was going to battle them all day. But Curtis and Sidney didn't last long. They didn't even make it through the first practice, and they were cut.
3: So that was just Cedric. I'm thinking, oh, he's slow. He can't get off a shot. He's not that strong. This is gonna be a layup. Bam! Knocks down a jump shot. Okay. Maybe that was luck. <laughs> Gets the ball again. Bam! Knocks down another jump shot. Now I'm thinking like, okay, hey, you know what? I'm gonna d this guy up. I'm gonna show him his it's like. 20 feet away. Bam! 25 feet away. Bam!
0: <laughs>
1: I my mind just goes to, damn, this white guy can play. <laughs> It was a good thing, too. The storied Celtics might have been the winningest team in NBA history, but they were fresh off their worst season in 30 years. And in Bird, they not only had a player who was supremely talented, but tough enough to take on any challenge.
2: Larry Bird plays it to the help, baby.
1: Talent, toughness, and confidence aside, Boston also liked winners. And when Bird led the Celtics to the NBA championship in just his second season, He was finally one of those two. And Larry
6: Bird is right in the middle. He's the eye of the hurricane known as the Boston Celtics.
1: Boston loved Larry Bird. It just wasn't so clear at first how much Bird loved the city back. Here's Bird speaking at the city parade celebrating their NBA championship.
2: There's only one place I'd rather be, French Lick. Thank you.
1: He proudly dubbed himself the Hick from French Lick. And he looked every bit the part. But those who played him for simple did so at their own peril.
7: One of the great ways, I think, of winding up with no money in your pocket is to think Larry Bird is dumb. Syntax is not intelligence. Unlettered is not stupid.
1: He did, however, allow the public one small indulgence.
7: You could come out on Saturday and watch him mow his lawn. Huge crowds toward to stop.
3: Larry Bird's cutting grass in front of (laughs) his He's mowing
1: his lawn in the springtime.
7: Larry is about doing things himself. And I think it's one of the things that made him so beloved in Boston.
1: But as Bird navigated through his new world, he still had one eye fixed on a familiar foe in a faraway land.
6: It is now exactly 12 noon. The draft is officially open.
5: The first pick,
6: the Los Angeles Lakers select. Irvin Magic Johnson,
1: Michigan State, 6'8", pounds. In the stoic Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the Lakers had talent, but what they were lacking in was energy. Irvin Magic Johnson was only too happy to provide it. Hello, hello. Here's Brian Gumbel. Let the place up.
4: Change
6: the franchise. Change the temperament. I, I changed it from the very first game. Here it was, the first game of a long season against the lowly Clippers. And Magic was embracing Kareem as if they'd
1: just won their 10th straight championship. It was like, man, this is a different kind of dude. Here's Magic's close friend, Arsenio Hall. From the day he arrived, he became the prince of the city. He reminded me of a
3: guy who wakes up without an alarm clock, and that's what I used to always say. I want to be happy enough to wake up without an alarm
1: clock because I want to go into my world. Here's former Lakers head coach Pat Riley. He had it, what
2: it is. As far as I was concerned, the it was not his ability or his size. The it was his attitude, was his leadership, was his mind.
1: In his rookie season, Magic led the Lakers to the 1980 NBA championship but what Bird couldn't possibly have known was that he had inspired Magic's performance when he was named Rookie of the Year that same day. Here again is Jackie McMullen,
7: the PR person from the Lakers says hey Irvin the Rookie of the Year voting has come out and Magic says okay well who won he said well Larry Bird won and Magic says well was it close and he said oh no.
1: Bird won the award by a 63-3 margin. Magic received the remaining three votes. Bird won the title the next year, and soon after that, black kids began showing up at the playground wearing Bird's number 33 jersey. Magic was surprised the first time he saw it, especially because it was on the blacktop in Los Angeles. Bird also had a close eye on Magic.
2: I'd get up in the mornings and see what he did, because their games came on late, then you look at the box score. I had to have him there for some reason. Like a crutch, somebody I can compare myself to.
3: I hated what was being said, that Larry was better than me, and I'm just a guy who can control the game. My first four or five years, that bothered me a lot. I didn't tell nobody it bothered me, but it did.
1: Their competitive dislike emerged from a greater truth. That on the court, they were two of a kind. Basketball prodigies who fused the substance of the 60s with the style of the 70s to create a new and exciting, yet selfless way to play the game in the 1980s. But with continued low television ratings and tape delayed finals, the NBA was struggling to get the word out. After the NBA signed a new TV deal with CBS before the 82 83 season, the rescue plan was simple. Sell more magic and bird. Here again is McMullen and Ted Shaker, former executive for CBS Sports.
7: You got this slick, showtime African-American guy out west, and you got the lunch bucket, floppy-haired white guy with the bruises all over his body. It's central casting, it's perfect.
1: I mean, this was like made in heaven. In 1979, this idea of magic and bird was created, and so that was sort of a no-brainer. We'd have a doubleheader. It would be the Celtics playing first and the Lakers playing second, and that's the way we did it. In 1984, when the Celtics and the Lakers both reached the finals just a year into the TV deal, the superstar investment was about to pay off. It came down to Game 7. It was like college in 1979 for Magic and Bird. Magic and the Lakers flew into Boston for Game 7. The plane
3: pulled in like the whole airport just stopped and turned and just stared at us and guys running up Magic! Larry's gonna kill you! Larry's gonna kill you! And so just looking at everybody Yeah! Bird's gonna kill you Magic!
0: When we come back the final installment of this terrific hour long story Larry Bird, Magic Johnson forever paired together This is Our American Stories, more after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. There are 16 or 17 of them up right now, and you can get a real college education without even going. And now let's return to the final installment
1: of Larry and Magic's story. Game seven of the 84 series was the highest rated game the NBA had ever produced, but Magic was not rejoicing.
7: Well, it was a big deal. I remember asking Quinn Buckner about it afterwards. They had a celebration in downtown Boston after they won the championship. And, you know, it was unusual for Larry to have these little outbursts, as Quinn would call them. But, you know, about 1130 at night, finally he turned to Quinn, he goes, I got him. I finally got him. And he was talking about magic.
1: The two teams met again in the NBA Finals the following season. But in the 1985 Finals, Magic flipped the script, winning the clinching game at the Boston Garden. But the significance of their rivalry and their relationship was about to change. Converse had convinced Magic and Bird to shoot a sneaker commercial in the summer of 1985.
3: You crazy. (laughs) I said, you crazy. I'm not shooting a commercial with Larry. So I said, okay, what, we're going to shoot it in L.A.? I would never went to L.A. to film it. Well, where are we going to shoot it?
2: You want to shoot a commercial? Come to my house.
3: I was like, oh, no. One stop light. I thought Lansing was small. I think the plan was, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm trying to get up out of here. My plan was that.
1: The ad was to be shot at the home Bird built for his mom just outside French Lick, Indiana. It featured a full-length basketball court. The day's first shooting location.
3: So they say, okay, you're playing one-on-one, and I'm looking at Larry, and he's looking at me like, "Is this real? Are we
6: playing, playing? Because you know, this, this is this is magic in Bird." I could just hear Larry, you know, starting in on. Well, you bring it to the basket, I'm going to send it 30 rows up.
3: So the guy was like, no, no, not like that. A fun game. We were both like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> like you can see this relief coming over both of our faces. We sat down next to each other. How was your summer? Oh, it's going good. How was yours? It's going great. We said, man, it's a nice spread. You got
2: it. He's asked me, is this where you play? I said, yeah, I play here. If it's not windy, if it's raining or
3: windy, I go to the gym. But this is where I do all my work. I see that tractor. You work on the, on the tractor? He said, man, I work on this tractor every day. Larry Bird work on a tractor? He
6: said, yeah. It's just them two walking and talking. And every once in a while, they'd stop. And one of them would say something. And then they'd start laughing.
3: Then they said, OK, break. It's lunch break time. I was going to my trailer. He said, no. My mother has prepared lunch for us up at the house. We went up to the house, and we sat down there, and we talked, and my mom and my brothers thought the world of him. His mother was so nice, making sure I had enough to eat. I just saw my mother. It was crazy. He charmed her, see he it, but that's magic.
2: He makes everybody feel welcome and warm, and he's a con man. <laughs>
1: By the dawn of the 90s, Magic won five titles, played in eight finals, and equaled Bird's MVP tally of three. The Prince of L.A. was now the king, and in Hollywood, being royalty has its perks. For Magic, his favorite perk was women. But things were not the same back in Boston. Larry Bird was taking care of a nasty back injury that occurred in 1985 while single-handedly building his mother's driveway back in French Lick. But after two ruptured Achilles tendons and surgery on his back in 1991, Bird kept going to work.
2: You know, I probably should have retired in 88, 89. But uh, it's that competition. Maybe one more chance, me and Magic get together in the finals. But it never happened.
1: And then Magic received a phone call.
3: I'm sleeping, really, laying down, just waiting on the game and uh, the phone rings and uh, the voice says, "Hey, you gotta uh, come back to L.A." And uh, I said, "Okay, why?" Well, I can't tell you until you get to L.A. So I said, "Okay."
5: <laughs>
3: Doctor Mailman he starts to. Tell me that you know uh, through the physical that I took that um, they discovered that I had HIV. Oh, it was everything. How is it possible? What happened? How did it happen to me? And my mind is racing, you know. And uh, and then you just you just devastated.
7: The first person I thought of was Larry. I wonder what Larry thinks.
2: The day that I heard about magic, it just sort of changed my love for basketball. It shook me up. You know, you gotta get that feeling, probably the same type of feeling I had when my father died.
3: He called caused me to uh, we're talking, you know, it's just, how you doing? I heard about it. and. Uh, you can almost hear both of us with some uh, tears in our eyes. And I'm choked up because he did call me. And uh, You know, when so- something happens to you, And then you find out who really your friends are and people who really care about you. Um, You figure all those battles, all those things we had to go through as warriors, as competitors, and as men. And um, here this man says, hey, you know what, man, you are okay? And so, um, that was the greatest moment for me too, you know, to have him check on me and to make sure I was okay.
1: Magic retired immediately and Bird's 91-92 season was his last in the NBA. To his delight, Magic was invited to play in the 1992 NBA All-Star Game He stole the show and won MVP honors. But that was just a warm-up for the encore Magic had up his sleeve. Here's Larry Bird.
6: He's not done yet because we're going to go to Barcelona and bring back the gold for everyone here in the United States.
1: For the first time ever, NBA players would be competing in the Olympics on the first Dream Team with the likes of Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley. The irony was that Magic felt incredible, but Bird, with his bad back, could hardly move.
3: But you know what? Didn't matter. We were still together. You know, didn't matter.
5: Hold me close and hold me
3: fast. And when he got his opportunities, he swished a few.
5: There. I see love that
3: I got my opportunity, I still was magic.
1: Today, decades removed from the height of their rivalry, their bond endures. Two impossibly different men with a connection only they can fully grasp.
2: I always, I always get this good feeling when I know I'm gonna see him because uh, he makes you feel good, you know, he really does.
3: <laughs> he's unbelievable. He's very private, but if he's your friend, man, you got a friend for life. And Larry Bird is a straight shooter. He'll tell you when he don't like you. That's one thing I wish I could have from him, that, that he has that I don't have. I wish I had that. I mean, he walked in here,
2: this whole room would change, and uh, maybe that's what I always wanted to be, but I just couldn't.
0: And great job, as always, Greg, and that's Greg Hengler doing the voicing and the writing on a piece that we love bringing you stories like this because you're not going to get them anywhere else. An unlikely friendship, likely competitors, these things happen, but a unique set of talents, unique men, and a love story, if ever there was one. A love story between Larry Bird and Irvin Magic Johnson, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here, and we love to tell your stories, too, and this one got sent to us along by a listener, and this is just one of those great stories about our country, its character, and you don't hear enough of these stories, and well, we wanted to bring it to you, and joining us to tell his story is Chris Williams, and he lives in Conroe, Texas, 45 minutes north of the city of Houston, and Chris, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you. Good to be here. And
0: Chris, before we talk about what brought your story to our attention, tell us a little bit about your life, where you were born, uh, your parents, uh, what were what were the important things to them, and uh, just a bit about your early life.
4: I was born and raised in Louisiana, actually 60 miles south of New Orleans in a place called Point O'Hash. And, um, you know, my, my parents were people that just kind of helped people, they went out of their way to help people. And so, we could be dressed up to go somewhere, go to church, whatever, and if somebody was broken down on the side of the road, my dad would stop and try to to help them uh, fix the car or or get to where they needed to go.
0: And so they were just, in the end, you were watching their generosity in action pretty much most of your life.
4: Yeah, definitely. I, we, we always had somebody living with us, and uh, I continued that tradition uh, with, with my family. Uh, we've always had, uh, exchange students and people that needed a place to stay living with us. And it's great now to see my, my girls are grown and they're continuing to do the same with, uh, with their family. So that's, that's amazing to me.
0: So giving it just become a part of your DNA. And, uh, let's talk about this thing that you just decided to start and what led to it. Talk about God's garage.
4: Well, God's Garage was was born in my little garage at the house, and I just wanted to be able to help people that uh, that needed help with their cars and couldn't afford to, to get them repaired, um, and and that was kind of born out of the, there were years where I couldn't afford parts for my cars, and I would just pray that the thing would run and get me to work and get me home every day, and I thought, man, one day I'm going to help people, and, and so that's what we did. We we just started trying to help people out,
0: and transportation is the lifeblood for so many people. And there's not a lot of help in that space. I mean, your car either runs or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, boy, you're in a world of hurting. So, Chris, sure. you, you start God's Garage. How do did, how did people start to find out about it? Do you remember your very first uh, your first person that you were able to bring help to and, and, and just help out in this endeavor? And then what happened next?
4: We, um, we helped a few people for, through word of mouth. Um, but the, the big one came when... I was on my way home from church one Wednesday night. It was dark and raining hard, and I could barely make out a couple of people walking on the side of the road. And I thought, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if they'll get in the car with me and let me give them a ride." And they got in. Well, it was a single mother and her daughter, um, and they were uh, on the way to their house. And, and I said, "What are you guys doing? What, why are you walking in the rain?" And they said, "Well, the truck's in the shop." And as we talked, found out the truck had been in the shop for three months. And I said, well, "Why is the truck still in the shop?" And I was kind of getting mad at the mechanic for not releasing the car yet. And uh, she hung her head and said, "We can't afford to, to to fix it." And so that just broke my heart, and and that really started us uh, in a in a, a sort of a sort of a more concerted effort to do more. And we built a shop at my uh, new house, uh, a forty by forty building, and we brought her truck in fixed her truck up and gave it back and that really started the ball rolling um there was uh, there's been so many people that uh, there's great stories that, that we've helped um and it's, it's just it's a blessing to me and to the guys that work with us to be able to do what we do blesses us as much as them
0: and how many people are you helping now how many tell, tell us about the, the shop um how many people are employed there uh, and how many people you're you're helping at this point
4: Right now, we uh, have about 20 mechanics. Um, we are all volunteers. We have about 20 people on a cook team that uh, rotate and cook for us on the nights that we work. We usually, during the day, Monday through Friday, we have four, or five, sometimes six guys working all day. And then Monday nights and Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, we have up to a dozen guys working until 9 o'clock or so. Um, so we have a, a lot of people helping out. We have a vetting team that goes through the applications. This year, we've given 41 cars away so far. We're about to give about 10 more away before the end of the year. And next year, our, uh, our plans are to double that. We want to give away 100 cars next year. We've also repaired a bunch of cars as well. So we do the two things. We repair vehicles for single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military, and we give cars away to single mothers, widows, and wives of deployed military.
0: And, you know, there's a, a quote that I just loved from you that I bumped across that said there was a time when you found yourself short on money and long on car troubles. And I guess yeah. in the end, that, that's an empathetic power you have in all these volunteers. And my goodness, these volunteers, they have jobs during the day, right?
4: Yeah, we have uh, everyone from teenagers after school to retirees to guys who are working full-time jobs and then come in at night and, and work at night. Uh, we have guys who do shift work and when they're not on their shift instead of being home and lazing around they actually come and, and volunteer their time it's a great thing
0: and they feel better about it too i mean this is the thing about giving i mean it's you know you're you're giving to other people but what you're getting in return uh chris talk about that
4: man uh, you know we live in a selfish world uh where we're bombarded with with these uh, thoughts that you're number one and take care of yourself and put yourself first and when we do that Uh, When we have problems and situations that arise, uh, they tend to be all-consuming, and they take us over. Well, when we get outside of ourselves and we try to help somebody else, our problems diminish. Uh, They're not so big anymore. And it's funny, you know, when we help other people, sometimes the things that we say to them and the things that we do for them uh, leads to some some changes in our own lives. And and what I just told that person that they needed to do, gee, I kind of need to do that, too. Uh, So it's 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 a a great thing for you to be able to refocus your energies in your life on on others instead of just on yourself
0: Well, hold that thought Chris when we come back I want to talk about two particular stories and then I want to share with the folks where they can go to help you and What you do and that's www.GodsGarageCar.com www.GodsGarageCar.com and when we come back More with Chris Williams of God's Garage in Conroe, Texas, and that's just 45 minutes north of Houston. His story, and my goodness, this is so many American stories. We're a good country, and we're a caring country. These stories here on Our American Stories. Habib and this is our American stories and we return to the story of Chris Williams and this is just a great generosity story it's a great American story and God's garage in Conroe Texas is what he started and it started with just an idea I want to help people and this is a space where people really need help and not enough people are hitting this space and it's transportation and not everybody lives in a big city where you can get on a bus and actually get where you need to go the car is such a fundamental part of our lives and without a reliable one, boy, life can get tough. And we heard Chris tell a story about that single mom and her daughter whose truck had been in a shop for three months. And she was—it sounded, Chris, it, like she was ashamed to admit that it had been there. And it sounded like you almost had to get that out of her. And there's a lot of shame involved in this, isn't there, Chris?
4: There is. Uh, when when you don't have reliable transportation you go through the normal channels. You start with your family. Hey, can I, can I borrow a ride? Can you take me here or there? Um, after a while, they get pretty exhausted helping you out. And so you, you turn to your friends. And after a while, they get tired as well. So when we are able to repair a car for someone or, or give them a car, we're not just giving them transportation. We're restoring dignity and, and giving them uh, a, a new independence with respect. They can take care of uh, their their needs without begging and borrowing. And so it's a, it's a big life change for a lot of these ladies that we help.
0: Indeed. And let's talk about a few stories in particular. Tell us about Susan and her special needs daughter.
4: And Susan... Uh, she came to us uh, she get filled out an application and and we brought her out, and we actually had a news crew from a local television station come out and we We wanted to interview her as part of the process and so we did so and showed her the garage. Well, what she didn't know is that we actually had the vehicle ready to give her, and so we gave it to her on on live t v um, fast forward. Uh, the gentleman, the, the reporter that did the story came back to me and he said, I've never done this. I've never gone back and, and done a follow-up on my stories in all of these years, but I'll, can I can I follow up? And I said, sure. Well, he had interviewed Susan at the, the onset before we gave her the car, um, met her daughter, and spent a little bit of time with her. When he went back to interview her, he he actually spent the day with her. He came straight from that interview to me and he said, do you understand what's happened with this lady? And I said, well, she's, uh, she's volunteering now at the garage. She's helping out with things. And, uh, yeah, she's, she's got freedom and, and independence. He says, no, you don't understand the change that has been made in this lady. I interviewed her. I'm a good judge of people, and she wasn't faking. She's a different person now. She has purpose. She has a sense of direction. She's telling everybody that she knows about the garage and what it can do for people. And she's, she's – you guys are biggest fans, but she's a different person. And so that just warms my heart uh, to just see the change in people.
0: Indeed. And, you know, one of the great pastors in this country in the 20th century is Rick Warren, and his book was The Purpose Driven Life. And for so many people, when you don't have that purpose, Chris, that's how we can get lost. Talk about another story, Lisa from the Salvation Army Shelter. Tell her story for us.
4: Lisa filled out an application, and uh, we vetted we her, we talked to her on the phone, and she came out. We were able to give her a car. But her story is uh, is something that you don't normally hear, uh, but that happens frequently. She is a uh, degreed, college-educated lady, succinct, articulate, well-dressed, uh, well put together. She came down for a job in Houston at a hotel chain. The hotel put her up in, in a suite and um, provided for her car and and necessities, and she was doing very well running the hotel uh, until the hotel was sold. And the new owners came in and fired everyone and said they were starting with their own people. So she found herself not only without a job but without a place to live. Uh, after uh, a few weeks had gone by and she'd stayed with friends and and, uh, run out of places to stay, she found herself in the Salvation Army. She ended up losing her car as she scrambled to find a new job. What a situation to find herself in after doing the things that we're supposed to do. She went to college. She got good grades. She she went after a career in, in hotel management and found herself in a shelter. And she said, "I never thought I 'd find myself here. We gave her a car she 's been able to get a, a new job, uh, a new lease on life, and she 's flourishing uh, again this is this is a life change for people it's not it's not a handout uh, it's it's just a help out and so what a what a blessing to do this.
0: Yeah, and we forget all of us who have that help readily available through social capital, through family, through a church, through a network. Um, we, I think many of us take that for granted, Chris. Talk about faith, and it's God's garage, obviously. But talk about the faith of the volunteers, you. What part did faith play in this?
4: Well, it was a, uh, it was a big deal for me to, at the, uh, the, the end of last year, beginning of this year, to say, I'm going to go work full-time at this garage where there's no money. <laughs> where there's no salary, there's no paycheck. But I, we felt like God was orchestrating this and, and this was the time and so we stepped out there. Uh we call it God's garage because it's his, it's it's uh his blessings that we're just stewarding. Uh it's not ours, it's not it's not Chris's workshop. Um so all of the uh the the, the glory, if you will, goes to God. Um the kudos goes to God, not to us. And and then as well, all of the uh provisions they have to come from God. Uh, we can't conjure up the money uh, ourselves, and, and so He provides that as well. So, yeah, faith is a, is a major thing for us. We, uh, we want to present our lives as a, uh, a testimony of, of how God's working through situations in our lives and what's going on. And so the guys that work with us, we develop relationships with and we're able to, to minister to each other. The ladies that we help, we're able to minister to. Um, so faith is a, a major part of this.
0: Yeah, you've got, in the essence, a head and body shop, a gear shop, a bunch of gear guys have a ministry, Chris. Yes,
5: yes.
0: It's just beautiful. And tell me this, what, what was your family's reaction when you said, this is where the Lord's calling me, because that's how so many Christians talk to their family. This is where he wants me to go. And I've, he- I've heard some things like that from friends, and I go, are you sure that's what he wears? <laughs> are you sure that's where he wants you to yeah. go?
4: You know, my family was great because we've led a, a faith-led life, um, and my wife uh, thankfully has a, a good job. Uh, so she was on board and, and said, yes, this is what we're supposed to do. Yes, leave your great paycheck behind. Uh, and I was doing ministry. I was I was pastoring, been pastoring for years. Um, so it's not like I was... Uh, trying to, to get out of a secular position, if you will, and get into a religious position or anything like that. Uh, but this was what we were supposed to do, and so we went for it. Uh, most of my friends are very supportive. They've seen God uh, in action in my life and realize that uh, when I say, you know, I'm, I'm following God's leading here, that, that it must be okay. It's going to work out. Uh, I've got a couple of friends that are kind of, you're doing what? for, And you don't get paid? How's that work? <laughs> so we... We've made adjustments, and and we're doing what we need to do to make it work. Um, but again, what, I mean, I can't explain to you how great the blessing is to do what we get to do to work with the guys that that are selfless and volunteering. And I'll tell you, almost all of our volunteers not only give a, a lot of their time, they give financially as well. Uh, and it just tells you how how amazing this ministry is.
0: And that is that is an amazing story. You're looking to give away. 100 cars next year and that's on yeah. top of the countless repairs you do uh, for all the folks in need and please if you want to give or you want to learn more go to www.godsgaragecar.com that's godsgaragecar.com and a final thought Chris for folks who are on the fence that they feel like they are being called to do something and yeah they've got to have that Really awkward conversation with the wife, or the wife has to have that conversation with the father and the kids. Um, mm-hmm. Talk him off the fence if you can, Chris.
4: I tell you, if if you feel like you're supposed to do something that God, you feel like God's leading you to do it, and it doesn't make sense to a lot of other people, but you still feel so strongly about it, that's obviously God. Uh, we know that you're you're not going to go do something good uh because the the devil wants you to do it. <laughs> so, and if it and if it's if there's some uh some pushback on it, well, you know what? If I feel this strongly about it, then God must be in it and I'm just going to open or go through open doors where they're open. Um the other thing I, I do want to say is do something for someone else, no matter how small, no matter how big, do something for somebody else. Get together with another person or five other people and do something good for somebody. Uh, because on our own we can do some really cool things, but when we get together as a group, oh my gosh, we can accomplish so much. But don't hold back. Don't wait for the one day if I win the lottery or if I do this or that. Do it now. Do something.
0: Indeed, and great words. And again, we're talking to Chris Williams. His story, God's Garage, not Chris's God's God's Garage in Conroe, Texas, about 45 minutes north of the great city of Houston. Chris Williams' story here And today we bring you a story our field correspondent, Faith, picked up while she was back home in California. And here is the first part of that piece.
9: Kathleen Broder grew up in Los Angeles, California, and has lived in California her whole life. She is a 69-year-old retired grade school teacher and has had five children of her own. But Kathleen She's not your ordinary retiree. She spends most of her time training for and participating in triathlons. A triathlon is a multiple stage competition most commonly involving swimming, cycling, and running. She races in about seven triathlons a year and runs about, you know, only one or two marathons as well. And at this point, Kathleen has participated in over 50 triathlons. Her obsession? Well, it began with running.
8: Yeah, I was always very hyperactive, you know, it's Kathleen, slow down. Kathleen, don't touch that. Kathleen. I was very hyperactive and so forth. And so um, when I was a young adult, I got into, or before that, uh, before college, I got into running. My first marathon, I was, I think I was 28. And I really liked that. And then, you know, so I was running all the time. But then we got married, and I think I was 34 when I had my first baby. And when I got pregnant, you know, some women run through all their pregnancies and everything. I just dropped dead. I mean, I was so exhausted. Um, After a while, you know, when the kids were a little older, I I got back into it. And then um, I started... I think really getting back into marathons about 10 or 15 years ago, I started really enjoying it again.
9: And it was actually through running that she met her
8: husband, Mike. We met and we were in the Santa Monica Track Club. We were just running buddies for a couple years. And then one day Mike said something about, oh, well, it's just about time to settle down and said, yeah, me too. Okay, we got married the next month. I mean, we never really dated. We were just friends, and then we got married. (laughs) We had met, and then we really didn't spend much time together. And then we started going to, we would go to races, and we would drive together and so forth. But, you know, it was never a dating relationship. It just turned, you know, the relationship changed really fast. And then... We got married, we had kids, we had, so two years later, we had our first, and then we had another one, and then we had another one, and we just kept having them, so, okay, this is weird. I had listened to this tape thing, cassette tape thing of um, mining your diamonds in your own acre, (laughs) so it's really funny, you know, like, stop looking all over the place, just look around your own area, and I think that kind of tweaked me a little bit, so, yeah, and we were always got along. We both liked classical music, and we had a lot of the same friends, and, you know, we were just a gang of single people, adults that we just hung out together, and then all of a sudden... And we lived only a couple blocks from each other, so, you know, sometimes we'd run together, but mostly we'd run together in the track club. You know, and then all of a sudden, we just settled down, and got married.
9: So it was running that brought them together. Who needs dating websites when you have running clubs. Most people know that constant running can take quite the toll on your body. And most people Kathleen's age, well, their body starts to give out on them. Knee problems, hip problems, and so on and so forth. In order to avoid those issues, Kathleen started to take some precautionary steps, which is how her interest in triathlons got started.
8: I started realizing that a lot of my friends... You know, their knees started going and they started complaining and I had fewer and fewer running friends. I thought, oh that's me. I better cross train. I started swimming a little bit and biking. I already had a bike. But I was biking a little bit, not too much. And then my son and I were up in Carpinteria and we were camping and this was about eight or nine years ago and we saw this thing called, I had never seen a triathlon and I couldn't believe it. I I saw it and I said, I'm going to do that. And I I was talking to all the people, well, what comes first and why is it in that order? I was just kept, I was fascinated. And so um, I immediately signed up for swim lessons. I mean, I knew how to swim, but you know, real, real swimming. I bought a steel bike. I didn't know what kind of bike to buy, but I bought one online. So the next year I did the Carpinteria Triathlon. I probably was the last one to finish because I had—I didn't even know how to shift the gears on the bike. The swim was so scary, and and then you know the run was fine. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm a tri- triathlete, and I thought that would be it. But something—I just kept—I just enjoyed it so much. So then I joined um, this swim group out at CLU. And they were starting a triathlon club and so I started working out with them and of course and then I had to get a better bike and it just took over. (laughs) And so uh, I wasn't retired yet, but school became less and less of a priority. And so I started realizing I don't really have time to go to work, I have too many workouts and you know that's why I retired. Besides the fact that Mike kept telling me I was stupid for working because I could make just as much money on my retirement, so I thought, and he had already been retired for so long, so I thought,
9: okay. And that was when her triathlon career took off. She began with some shorter races before diving headfirst into the longer ones.
8: I started doing the little sprint triathlons; those are the short ones. The problem with those is that those depend on mostly on speed and I'm not fast I just have a lot of endurance you know I was I did okay but those were kind of scary because you know things go flying and just have to always keep going so then a couple years after I started I started doing the Olympic ones and I liked that a lot more three years ago I started doing the half Ironman and I really really liked those because I was really competitive that's when I got really competitive
9: A half Ironman triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and a 13.1-mile run. And this year, Kathleen qualified for the world championship for the half Ironman. The last several years, this race has taken place far away, such as Austria and Australia. This year, she will be running in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There are a number of other races that Kathleen has ran as well such as some popular ones, like the Boston Marathon. Kathleen has ran the Boston Marathon three times. She will be running it again this year, beating her qualifying time by 24 minutes. How could she do that? What's this woman's training philosophy? A slow, steady pace with a lower heart rate allows an endurance athlete to train longer and more often without stress or injury. Obviously, Kathleen is not your typical triathlete. But what does a typical training week look like for her? I'm getting tired even thinking about it. Does this woman take any rest days?
8: I really listen to my body, and I can tell, like I did a a century, uh, a 100-mile bike ride on Saturday. And it was very hilly and solving. And um, I could tell, so I was supposed to, in my brain, I was going to run on Sunday and I didn't. And on Monday, I have two groups that I swim with, two different ones. One in the morning at six and one at um, seven o'clock at night. And I was supposed to run in the middle of the day and I didn't because I could tell I was worn down. So I did a bike ride today, but it wasn't, it was like 30 miles. It wasn't that big a deal, but it was just to, you know, kind of get get back the days that I take off every once in a while you know life happens somebody gets sick or I get sick or that might be a day that I that I take off but I don't work it into my schedule I either there's something always happening I usually do two things a day but um, sometimes like um, if it's my long run day you know I won't I probably won't do anything else except run
0: And when we come back, more from Kathleen Broder. 30 mile bike ride, not a big deal. A big deal for everyone in this studio, that's for sure. Me included. Actually, a one mile bike ride right now in my present condition would be a really big deal. When we come back, more with Faith and Kathleen, a 69 year old triathlete who's making us all here in the studio look, well, just plain silly. This is Our American Stories, and we continue Faith Garcia's conversation with a 69-year-old triathlete named Kathleen Broder. And by the way, what's so fascinating about this lady is she had never heard of a triathlon. And then when she heard what it was, which is a mile-plus swimming, a long, long bike ride, and a very long run, she thought, hey, let me give that a shot. Let's continue with their conversation.
9: So you work out like two or three times a day sometimes?
8: Yeah, I'm not allowed. I don't let myself work out three times a day. But you don't let yourself? I no, I, well, the only time I do that is on Thursdays because I swim at um, six in the morning and then I meet my friend at, at, afterwards at 7.30 at the park and we usually ride down to Zuma and back. But she has a coach that makes her run after her bike. And so sometimes in support, I will... Um, <laughs> I will um, run with her afterwards. And the hard part about that is that on Wednesdays, I swim at lunch and then Wednesday nights I have track. And then Thursday morning I have swim and then I bike with her and then sometimes I run. So I am, Thursdays are a really hard day.
9: Now that all adds up to about 18 to 20 hours a week. Basically a part-time job. Of course, with that kind of exercise, she needs to refuel herself. And during the races, you will catch her downing those awful goo packets. But her signature snack are those tiny little peanut butter crackers that she munches on during the biking part of her races. And of course, when she's not racing, she gets hungry too. Obviously, if you work out 2-3 times a day, I like eat constantly. Are you always hungry?
8: Um I am and I really try, I really try to catch it before I get starving or else I'll eat something you know, like Carl's Jr. or something. I try to always, you know, to have stuff. I pretty much eat anything and most of my friends are real, you know, vegan maniac people. You know, some people eat only raw foods and some, you know, they have all kinds of these crazy things. but. I don't do any of that because it's not like I'm training for the Olympics or something. I eat a lot, but for when I'm working, if I'm coming up on a race, a couple days before, I start eating a lot more simple carbohydrates because you want to, you don't want a lot of that of the stuff in your system, you know, you want it to kind of get through. And so I'll eat more like, you know, white rice, and I won't eat any fresh vegetables. I won't eat um, any heavy meats or anything like that and especially the night before and then in the morning I have, you know, I have the banana and oatmeal and I usually eat on the way to the race and, you know, there's just certain things that you do.
9: For anyone who runs races or competes in triathlons, they know that bodily functions, well, they can make the race a little more uncomfortable than it already is.
8: The last really stupid thing I did was um, it was at the Oceanside 70.3 last year, and the wait to get into the water was so long. And I had a water bottle with me because sometimes, you know, you get in that ocean water, you get very thirsty and you can't drink anything and you're in there for a long time. So I, was, so I had a water bottle. I drank a whole water bottle while standing in line, and then I was swimming. But you can't, unless you stop and relax. You can't be, <laughs> and so I was in such pain because I didn't want to stop because I had all these people behind me, and um, and it, I just I I just died. So you know, eventually I got out. and It was okay, but um, because you had to be. Yeah, it was because you can't really you can't swim at the same time. I mean, because you're not relaxed if you're swimming. And so, you know, just to tread water and people swim over your head. And so <laughs> that was really off. That was the worst thing.
9: Kathleen, she works out with all different types of groups. Of course, there are very few people her own age in these groups. She is often much faster than people 30 years younger than her because her running endurance is so high. Typically, she said her swim is her worst event. Her biking is good, but then she really catches people on that run. And at 69 years old, going on 70, she puts young guys in their 20s to shame.
8: It's funny because even my swim coach would say, he'll point to me and say, see though, she's a real athlete. You know, he's always saying these things about me. It's so embarrassing. But, you know, I really don't think about it and I don't really compare myself. And, the, and I do know other people who are, you know, my age and much faster. But I do know there's not very many of them. You know, and there aren't and the older I get, you know, like I'm going into this seventy to seventy four that's the age category for triathlons that I'm in now. A lot of times, like this weekend I'm doing a try and I'm the only person in my age category, so it's like kinda of relaxing. It's like oh right, this is great. But you know, I still want to do well. Yeah, I don't know, I really can't wrap my head around that because I think because I work out with so many people who are younger, I just enjoy I enjoy that. I have a hard time being around people my own age. I like being around kids people my kids age you know that that kind of thing and that's who I that's who I'm with. I really enjoy and I think I think I think they're I'm like them but when they're looking at me they're looking at their grandmother. (laughs) Yeah it's pretty funny but I just enjoy that and the older people that do I do work out with I mean a lot of them are in their 60s you know there are some we're all kind of the same, you know, we all enjoy being with all ages and, and, um, you know, we're pretty much, you know, we do the same kind of stuff. There are some who are very, very competitive and, you know, it's like killer and, you know, and then they take it a lot more seriously. But I think a lot of us, most of us have been very active our whole lives, you know, either marathoners or something, you know, you don't come into something like an endurance, um, you know kind of a, an activity out of out of the blue you know you've done something for several years or it's a personality type i think it's a, per, a lot of its personality when i'm out there it's like you know sometimes i'm kind of amazed that i'm out there too and that these people you know like i'm passing this guy that's 24 years old especially on the bike i mean seriously this last weekend I did this century in solving it was it was hilly. It wasn't horrible. There were so many guys carrying or just walking their bikes up these hills. And I mean, I was in my you know my easiest gear, but I'm like, mm, you know, good morning, good morning. And I'm still going in there. I'm passing them up and all this. But what they do, guys, they power through at the beginning, not realizing you can't do that when you're running, you know, riding hundred miles.
9: So that's how you beat out a lot of the guys is by well they're chasing stupid yourself.
8: yeah yeah they're stupid yeah and a lot of them are heavy some you can't always tell because some of these heavy people are, are very strong especially in the swim my gosh huge people that so fast in the water but bike on a hill and you're heavy you've got to work a lot harder and then the run too so
9: but of course not every experience has been great for Kathleen. She has fallen off her bike and gotten a concussion. She has broken her collarbone, gotten plantar fasciitis, and even tripped while running and broken her hand. As you can tell, Kathleen though, she's a pretty intense person and it is hard for her to stop. She once told me a story about a race she finished where it was so cold she had hypothermia, but she was so out of her head that she just kept on going. Talk about endurance. Kathleen Broder at 69 years old is definitely an anomaly, but of course she will not always be able to be this active. But for now, she's just incredibly grateful and enjoys what she's able to do.
8: I would never just sit still. I would always be doing, you know, some kind of an activity. It doesn't have to be an athletic thing because I do. I love to play cards. I love to play board games, so I can do that, but I would just want to have nice people, active people, not, not real old people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I consider myself so lucky to be able to do all this. And one of my friends the other day said, um, that I work out, my training partner said that she never goes on Facebook because it makes her feel bad because she sees all this stuff that other people are doing that she's not doing. And I started thinking about that and thinking, I just feel so fortunate. Because um, I think, you know, I worked a long time and, you know, I loved my job, but, you know, I enjoy so much what I'm doing now. And I have my bike group groups, and I have my triathlon groups, and I have my swim groups, and I have my running groups, and there's totally different people in all of them. There's some crossover, but not a lot. So I feel really fortunate because I have a lot of people to hang out with and stuff.
9: Yeah, and you're fortunate because, like, to have your body in such
8: good like yeah.
9: condition that it's not you know breaking down on you yeah
8: and you know what if it does break down i'm ready i mean you know <laughs> you i can that? do i can do other things mm-hmm. i mean you know if i broke my leg you know i've had to come back from injuries and stuff so i don't think it wouldn't be the end of the world i would i would just do something else but you know i enjoy that that's why I'm, i feel fortunate now so
9: this is just something you like doing for it's now just yeah
0: And what a great piece. Thanks so much for that, Faith. And Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old triathlete, I just wrote a few notes down. I love that she said, I have a hard time being around people my own age. Well, I'd have a hard time being around you, Kathleen. You'd exhaust me. She said she eats constantly. Well, we eat constantly here at Our American Stories, too. We just never even move our bodies. This is Our American Stories. The story of Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old lady who decided, well, I'm going to do this thing called the triathlon. And by the way, a triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, then a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13-mile run. Give that a shot on your day off. This is Our American Stories.